Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. Appreciate you joining me another day as we continue discussing uh, the doctrine of Abraham's seed, Israel, replacement theology. I hope you will be helped and encouraged by these and hope you'll learn something most importantly. So don't forget, Friday, Lord willing, at noon, we are going to do another live Q&A. Hit me with the best questions that you have. Uh, Whatever scriptures you feel debunk replacement theology or whatever, send them to me. Any verses you have showing God's not done with Israel, uh, send them to me. If you can't do it live, email them to me at thespiritofprophecy1611 at gmail.com. Leave them in the comments. Get those to me, and we will talk about those on Friday. Please challenge me on this. I'm ready to go. I want to be challenged. I think it's going to be good. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to listen to a sermon. It's a short 22-minute sermon. We're going to listen to it at one and a half speed to help speed it up a little bit. And, and it's one that is debunking replacement theology. Now, a lot of people get nervous when I uh, you know, do stuff like this, like it's being divisive, you're being mean. And listen, I am nice to my pre-tribulational, dispensational, fundamental Baptist brethren. I like them. I get along with them. In fact, I get along with them and like them sometimes better than people who agree with me on a lot of these things. However, I do not consider Ruckmanites to be uh, brethren, independent, fundamental Baptists. I do not give them that honor, respect, or dignity. I do not believe that they deserve it. Uh, I believe Uh, It is wrong to give it to them because uh, their heresies are so many, so great, and so bad. So because of that, uh, I have no problem going after Ruckmanites. And if that makes you nervous, I I don't know what to tell you. But if you're not a Ruckmanite, I don't think you need to worry about me doing this. But I will with them. And I'm gracious to a fault, okay? I mean, I've had to completely separate myself from people who just couldn't handle you know, me hanging out with pre-tribbers and people who might use, you know, certain terminologies different than they do on repentance and stuff like that. You know, I'm not interested in hanging around people like that. Uh, I I do. I, I love my fundamental Baptist brethren, but I do not put Ruckmanites in that camp. They are a completely different breed. I believe they are wolves in sheep's clothing. I believe they are brute beasts that the Bible talks about. And I don't believe Sluter is any exception to this, and so I find it insulting when they are even identified with fundamental Baptists. Their heresies are that bad. And so we are going to listen to one that I have picked on before, and I didn't even really want to pick on this guy again because I already have. But then, as I was listening to the message, I noticed he named me in it, and so that made me feel justified. So I got to defend myself. Even though I have no idea what I'm defending myself from, Wait till you hear the accusation leveled against me, and I don't even know. I don't even know what he accused me of. Wait, do you wait? Do you hear what he said? I don't know what I got accused of, but I'm going to defend myself anyway. And so we're going to listen to a message called "Replacement Theology Debunked," uh, that is preached by good old Andrew Sluter, the Intruder. And I think y'all will get a blessing from this. Let's hear what he has to say. As far as you know, making you feel like we're enduring to the end, <clears throat> but uh, so it's a nice lesson. Uh, not going to be super, super long, but notice Hebrews 8. Hebrews chapter number 8, all right? Very important, though, what we are going to study tonight, very important. A lot of people get real bad mixed up with this. And so Hebrews 8, get one, get a Bible. 
All right, look there at Hebrews chapter 8 and look there at verse number uh, 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Verse number 8, for finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins, and their iniquity will I remember no more. In that he saith, the new covenant, he hath now made the first old. Now that, that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now, what we uh, are dealing with here are some main passages that people love to take and to try to prove what we call replacement theology. Replacement theology is the belief that the church has replaced Israel, and that all the blessings and all the... Um, all the promises that are given to Israel now apply to the church. Because Israel rejected the Messiah, they are now replaced by the church. Replacement theology goes hand-in-hand hand with what we call Reformed theology. Not, not everybody that believes in Reformed theology believes in Replacement theology, and not everybody that believes in Replacement theology believes in Reformed theology. But nine times out of ten, when somebody's Reformed, they also believe in Replacement and vice versa. Uh, this is very common amongst Calvinists, very common amongst Presbyterians, this uh, idea of Reformed or Replacement theology. What this teaches is, is that now the church has taken over the place of the Jew. And so when Paul's writing here, they think that he's writing about the church and the church getting in on the new covenant. Now we're going to dissect this and show you, I'm going to show you why the new covenant does not apply to the church and why we have not replaced the Jews. Because when you go to these verses, it doesn't make any sense, all right? So notice what he said there, the new covenant does not apply to the church. Now that ought to freak you out right there. And many dispensationalists, especially the Rockmanite brand, they put a distinction between a covenant and a testament. They do not believe they are the same thing. And even though uh, he's going to, you know, the book of Hebrews uh, makes a, that a very difficult selling point. In fact, it proves that's false. But we are going to watch Sluter directly contradict not just my theology, no, direct statements from Paul. He's going to go to the scriptures and literally just completely contradict what the Bible flat out says in more than one spot, just, just showing errors. Okay, what he's, what he's about to do, I'm going to show you, he is going to build a premise around an error. Okay, he believes that what he's about to read in, or what he just read in Hebrews 8 is about the millennium. That's what he believes, according to his theology. And so because he believes these things are about the millennium, he's going to distract and go to millennium passages and just make application, even though it is verifiably provable that this was not about the millennium. This passage was not about the millennium. This was about something in their current day that they were currently in. So let's listen to what, listen to some more. So let's look, look at it there, verse number 8. For finding fault with them. Who's them? Israel. For finding fault with them. That's Israel. He saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, notice, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This has nothing to do with the church. Well, you know, we're, 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 the, we're the spiritual Israel. No, we're not. Well, we're the, we're the, you know, the, uh, uh, we're the new Jews. We're not, though. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, there's three groups of people. There's Jew, Gentile, and Church of God. You're either a Christian or you're a lost Jew or a lost Gentile. There is no such thing. This is what I really try to drive home with a lot of people because you can get caught up with a lot of heresy if you don't get this. There is no such thing as saved Jews. There's no such thing as saved Gentiles. You are either saved 
or you are a lost Jew or Gentile. So when God is talking here about the house of Israel and the house of Judah, he's talking about the Jews. All right. So just a, a few things there. So notice, and I want you to keep this in mind, this is hilarious because this, this shows when somebody is using textbook theology and reasoning rather than actually studying the scriptures. Nobody comes up with dispensationalism from reading their Bible. Nobody interprets scriptures the way they do without reading books on dispensationalism telling you to interpret scriptures that way. And proof of that is we are going to see what he just did with a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but then we're going to watch him just right after this directly contradict what's stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, proving he's not studied the chapter, proving he does not know the context of what he's saying. And so he goes to the verse in 1 Corinthians 10 where it says, Give not offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God. And then it goes on, Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Okay, So notice that verse there, they use that as a proof text of the three groups that God has. That's what they do with that. But in reality, Paul's just telling people, hey, if you're going to try to reach people, don't do things that are offensive to these different people. And different people are offended by different things. Jews are offended by different things than Gentiles are offended by. It's not making this dispensational distinction of three different groups of people. That's not what it's trying to do there. You're just using that as a proof text to set up something that just isn't biblical. And so he brings up that this new covenant is for the house of Israel and Judah. And you know what? That is exactly what it says in Hebrews. So if we can apply this to the church, that creates a lot of problems if you're a dispensationalist. And here's, here's the thing. Most of your saved dispensationalists, they will not go to passages like Hebrews chapter 8 because... They are limited in the heresies that they will go into because they're saved. So most Baptists are smart enough to just stay away from passages that are big problems for them like this. Ruckmanites, they have no fear of any passage because there is no limit into the lies and heresies that they will go into and the stupidity and foolishness. And Sluter takes the stupidity and foolishness to a pretty high level here, but most Baptists won't do that. And so they just avoid these things. But again, we're, we're going to see, uh, we're going to start pointing out some major errors that he's making. So first off, he's making this passage about the millennium. He is telling us this can't be about the church because it says Israel and Judah. And, and so again, if it is talking about the church, if we can display that it is applied to the church, that does create a lot of problems for you if, you dis, if you're a dispensationalist. So, again, most Baptists won't go to this. Ruckmanites will. And so let's keep listening and see what he has to say. He's talking about the nation of Israel. So notice he says this in verse number 9, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Notice this could not be talking to the church. You say, why? Because I don't have any fathers that came up out of the land of Egypt. Why? Because I'm not a Jew. Uh, Did you all hear that? Sluter just said, this can't be talking about us because I don't have any fathers that came out of Egypt. That's what Sluter said. Okay, because And who were those fathers that came out of Egypt? It was the Jews. And Sluter said, that can't be about us because we didn't have any fathers that came up out of the land of Egypt. That, my friends, is a direct contradiction to a statement from the Apostle Paul himself 
to a Gentile church, to the Corinthians, and guess which chapter? Guess which chapter? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that Sluter already referred to. Let's look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but let's go back to verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all eat the same uh, drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Um, yes, Luter, we do have fathers that came out of Egypt. You know why? Because we are a part, we are connected to the church that was in the wilderness that drank of that spiritual rock and that rock was Christ. There are so many statements in that one passage that just contradict everything dispensationalists teach. And I love it that he said, I have no fathers that came out of Egypt. And I agree with him, but I do. You know why? Because I am of faith. I am of, I am of the people of God. I am of Israel. I have been grafted in as a, wild, as a wild olive branch into that olive tree. I've been grafted into that. So I've received adoption. I've been adopted into the family of God. And so you better believe I have fathers that came out of Egypt. Sluter directly contradicted a direct statement from Paul, and he did it from a chapter that he referred to in this message, but again, took out of context because he clearly has not studied 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's just used a proof text that's used in every dispensational book to try to create division in ways that God uh, does not describe in the Bible. So massive massive error right there, setting up something to prove this can't be about us. But no, it can be about us. We did have fathers that came out of Egypt. So I don't know what else to tell you. You know, Sluter is going to have to argue with me and the Apostle Paul. And this is where they all get miscompobulated. Verse number, I don't know how these guys miss it. I really don't understand how replacement theologians miss the text. You know, replacement theology is one of those like, oh, we're just so much smarter and we just have such a better understanding of the scriptures. And yet they miss clear scriptures right here. I remember one time, and this is where you got to really read the verse. What does the verse say? I remember I was, uh, you've heard me tell this story. I was dealing one time with a guy out in Black Mountain, and uh, he accused me. He, I, I told him what I believed. And he said, well, the problem with you dispensationalists is you lay too much emphasis on the wording of Scripture. Well, boy, do we ever. Because notice what it says. God is saying, I'm going to make a covenant with them, the nation of Israel, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. So if this is talking to the church. What fathers are we talking about? In fact, the church doesn't have fathers, Right? We understand that they try to say, well, you know, the early church fathers. Well, call no man your father upon the earth. The only, fa the only person that's acceptable to call father is a, physical, uh, 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 is a physical father. I'm not Father Andrew or anything like that. So understand this is talking about their literal fathers, the ancestors of the Jews. They were, taken, they were led out of the land of Egypt, right? So this isn't talking about the church. All right, we don't have any Jews in here, as far as I know. Nobody's a Jew in here. So that must mean he's talking to literal, physical descendants of the Jews. Because they continued not in my covenant, verse 9, and I... Yeah, so let me just point that out too. He's so he went and he took that passage in the scriptures where Jesus said, Call no man father, and therefore that can only be stated about physical fathers. Okay, that's that's what he said. The problem with that is we do see in places like 1 Corinthians 10 where it literally called them fathers. Okay, you know, Paul, he was uh, uh you know, he referred himself as people's father in the faith. 
what Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees for is they were always trying to use these lofty titles to elevate themselves. If someone is literally your father, it's not wrong to call them that. If someone is literally a father in the faith, a literally a church father, whatever, it's it's not wrong. We're just not supposed to be going around just kind of giving people these lofty titles, taking them upon ourselves. That's what that's about. But Paul literally called those who came out of Egypt their fathers. And he said that to the church in Corinth. So there's no way around that. He's creating a rule, again, ignoring context, which is what dispensationalists do. They create all these rules from statements and scriptures. But the problem is these statements and scriptures, they're taking them out of context. They're, they're applying them in ways that the writer of those scriptures never intended them to be applied. And so they go into great error. So it's, it's amazing their ability to quote scripture and then teach error. But we're literally seeing them doing that and, that, and that's why they have so many great contradictions. I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now, hold on a second. Notice it's a covenant made with the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, after those days. Whenever you read that statement in the last days or those days, what is it talking about prophetically? Second advent, the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. After those days... I will make a covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I'll All right, so he just created another rule. He created another rule and just told you that after those days means after the second advent. Again, he's trying to connect Hebrews 8 to the millennium, which you can't do. And I'm going to show you that in a little bit, but I'm just showing how they make up these false rules. What does after those days mean? Because clearly what he's reading there is future tense. You know what he's doing? He's making the exact same mistake that they make when they read Romans chapter 11. Whenever they read Romans chapter 11, they go to the pastor who said, out of Zion shall come a deliverer that shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And what they do is they then declare, see, it's future tense, therefore it's still to come. Wait a minute. Are you sure? Because we see in Acts chapter 3, Peter, he talked about uh, Christ coming. Well, let me, let me read the passage. I want to make sure I quote this right. In Acts chapter 3, oh, I just lost it again. Acts chapter 3 and verse 26 says, Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning every one of you from his iniquities. So according to Peter, that happened and that at the cross. Now, it's not Christ's fault that a lot of the Jews are not accepting that. But the dispensationalists, they make the mistake of thinking it's just going to automatically happen to them, but that's just not scriptural in any way, shape, or form. So why is it spoken of in future tense? Here's why. Because it was quoting an Old Testament passage that when it was given, it was future. And that's exactly what's happening here in, in Hebrews. It's quoting uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. And let's look and see what it says in Jeremiah chapter 31. It says, Behold, uh, the days come, say the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write them in their hearts and will be their God. 
and they should be my people. Okay, now I'm going to stop reading right there because we're going to say more about this here in a, in a minute. But he just told you after those days means millennium. Uh, no, those days or the latter days or the last days, if you want to say that, they were currently in them. The last day started at the bringing in of the new and better covenant. They are in the time right now that, you know, he mentioned Acts being a transitional book, and it is. They're transitioning out of the old covenant and into the new covenant. They are going away from the things of the temple and going towards Christ. That's what that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. And so, um, Again, he he doesn't he doesn't. Here's the problem. We'll when we'll say more about this. He doesn't understand first off what the old covenant is, nor what the new covenant is. He doesn't understand how the transition works. Again, because he all his thinking is around dispensationalism, not the scriptures. And so we'll display this here in a little bit as we see him continue to go on and directly contradict direct quotes from the scripture. So let's let's continue. Listen to what he says. I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me people. Let me ask you a question. Does the church have, uh, is, is God your God now? Yeah, the honest, not trick question. The answer is yes. But hold on a second. What in the world is he talking about? This is talking to the church. What's he talking about? After those days, I'll make a covenant with them, and they shall be my God, and they, or I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What in the world is that talking about if that's the church? There's no way in the world it's talking about the church. I'll put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. Well, that's not talking about the church. Nobody, nobody sitting here tonight has the law of God written in your mind and in your heart. Nobody. Do you remember all 613 Jewish laws? Do you remember all of it? Do you have the law of God written in your heart? No. All right. So right there, another direct contradiction to the Apostle Paul himself. So here, here's, here's the problem that Sluter has. He's, he's misdefining everything. He does not get his definitions from what we read in the scriptures. He will read a passage, sometimes a difficult one, sometimes one that could be a little vague, and he will just apply a meaning to it with no scriptural basis whatsoever. So when he hears God's law being written on their hearts, he interprets that as you'll have all 613 laws memorized. That, that's how he interprets that. That's what he thinks that means when, when that takes place. But this is, again, because he does not study scripture. He studies dispensationalism. What does that mean to have God's law written on your heart and mind because he said nobody has that but wait a minute what if i show you a place in the bible where some do have that you know what 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 if what if i can show you that you know and would you admit your error see again he doesn't have a proper understanding of what these things are let's go to romans chapter 2 and let's see what it says and so in verse we'll go to verse 12 says, for as have many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Those hearers, that would be somebody who they've heard the law, they know what the law is, but they're not doing it. Okay, that's what a hearer would be. But for when the Gentiles, watch this, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law, written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, 
and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, what's this talking about here? And I, I wish we had time to expound on all of Romans chapter 2. I preached a sermon a while back on that that I think will be very helpful where I uh, clearly lay out what this passage is talking about. But what, he's, what, what Paul is trying to teach them here is that if you Jews think that because you are keeping this one law of the circumcision that you are justified before God, while at the same time you're breaking many other laws, okay, you are, you are sadly mistaken. The Jews, they thought because they were doing the circumcision that they were really righteous because of that. But Paul's pointing out there's so many other laws that you're not following. So guess what? You're not keeping the law just because you keep that one law. If you go and following the letter of one law makes you a keeper of the law, then what about Gentiles who actually follow some of God's laws when they don't even know the law of God? Because there are. There have been Gentiles throughout history who have kept certain parts of the law, who have been moral people, who never killed anyone, you know, who just, you know, had certain decency. You know, there's, I know lost people that behave better than a lot of saved people. I know. And that, and, and I'm ashamed to say that, but it's just true. So what Paul is illustrating here is if you're keeping of that one law and when you're only following it by the letter makes you righteous, how much more righteous would Gentiles who don't even have the law of God yet keep it anyway they would be they would be better than you they would be your judges because that law is actually in their heart is what he's saying that's what he's that's what he's telling them they actually have the law of god written on their heart so we have we do see in the scripture where there are people who have god's law written on their heart and understand we have god's law as say people written on our heart not the 613 from the Old Testament, Sluter. We have two of them. You know what they are? Love God and love your neighbor. On these two things hang all the law and the prophets. Those things are in our heart. We do, we do know those things. And, you know, we don't always follow them. The greatest. Sluter will read that passage. It means everybody's obeying them all the time. Uh, no, we, we fail. We mess up. But we know these things are true. And the, and the reality is, if we will just follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, and we will follow those two laws of love God and love our neighbor, we won't violate the law of God. What will be manifest will be the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and against such, there is no law. So Sluter just, he doesn't understand the New Testament. And so that's how he's able to just blatantly contradict what Paul said. And he'll scoff at that. That, you know, that I'm saying that some do have God's law written on the heart, even back then, because again, he thinks it's something completely different. He is interpreting what that means directly from Hebrews 8 that does not go into detail describing it. He just applies a description from his own warped mind. But if we go to other places in the Bible and we see exactly what that looks like, then all of a sudden we get it. We understand it perfectly. So... This is just Sluter being wrong and directly contradicting direct statements from Paul 
Paul said there were people that had God's law written on their hearts. You're not, the law is not written on your heart. You're, you have an epistle written. You're an epistle known and read of all men is what Paul said. You're okay, that's a completely different thing. When he told them they were epistle known and read of all men, that's a completely different thing. It's, it, it's not even related to the subject. And what Paul said there did not contradict the law of God written on our hearts. You'll see, he, Sluter does this a lot. Whenever he starts going into error, he just starts throwing out scripture references from all over the place that aren't connected. It's like he just throws out these word salads, but you know the words he chooses are words from the scripture, but they are not connected to what he's talking about. It's just like, I just said something stupid. Let me throw a whole bunch of scriptures at him and they'll think I must be telling the truth. Well, those scriptures have to apply to what we're talking about and they don't. You're not the law, you're an epistle. So notice what it says in verse number 11. And they shall not teach. Now this is where the rubber meets the road. You say, how do you know this ain't talking to the church? Verse number 11. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the what? Now let me ask you a question. This isn't a trick question. My wife accused me of asking trick questions a lot. Maybe I do. But are we supposed to go soul winning? Yes. Are we supposed to tell people about the Lord? Are we supposed to try to win them to Jesus? Yes. All right. Are there people out there that don't know the Lord? Okay. Then somebody, please explain to me verse number 11. I remember I was debating an old boy uh, on, uh, online one time, Tommy McMurtry. He believed in replacement theology, and he was making a wreck of these verses. He was trying to say, well, it's Israel, it's the church. And I was like, so we have to, well, he's all about telling the church in Israel. And I'm like, so we, we don't go and tell Israel the church. And I mean, he was making a mess. I couldn't even hardly understand what he was saying. You can't get around verse 11. Okay. Does anybody know what he just accused me of there? I, I, I don't even know what I got. I don't even know what I got accused of there. But my name was mentioned, so I, I have a right to defend myself. <laughs> but it sounds like he's implying I don't understand what uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11 is talking about. I don't remember talking about that with him in our, in our discussion. But um, I do remember I had preached on Hebrews chapter 8, and he had left a comment on there telling me it was stupid. Or he, didn't, he didn't debunk anything I had to say. But, um, yeah, so I don't know what I got accused of believing right there but it's very clear when it says in Hebrews 8:11 and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the lord for all shall know me even from the least unto the greatest okay now sluter reads that and he thinks that means apparently everybody in the world is going to know the lord at that time because again he's applying this to the millennium that's what he's doing even though we have no reference to the millennium anywhere here in this passage no, Sluter has connected that with the millennium, but he's not displayed from the scriptures where it is. Here's what this is connected to. It's connected to the new covenant that he made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, when it came to the old covenant, okay, how did you enter into the old covenant? Right? Now, if uh, what you, know, you did through the circumcision. Okay, circumcision was how you could enter into the old covenant. Now, if you do not keep that covenant, if you do not keep the law of the circumcision, you know what else you can do? Uh, you can be cut off from the covenant. You could be accursed. Under the old covenant, you could be removed from the old covenant if you don't keep the law. In fact, cursed is he that continueth not in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Under the old and inferior covenant, you could 
get thrown out of that covenant. And so you know what they were did? They were commanded to teach their children those laws of God to make sure they were written on the doorpost of their house and his frontlets between their eyes and that they talk about them when they walk by the way and all those things. They were told to do all these things lest they forget the Lord. And, and that would often happen where they would forget the Lord. And there would be these generations rise up that didn't know the Lord. And we see them constantly failing and following God's law. And so um, that's how you got into the Old Covenant. So it, it was a part of, they were supposed to diligently be teaching the things of God. Now, under the New Covenant, am I saying we don't need to teach the things of God? Well, of course we need to teach the scriptures. But here's the thing about the New Covenant. How do we get into the New Covenant? Are we born into the New Covenant? Do we get into the new covenant through circumcision? No, we get into the new covenant through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in the finished work of our better high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ. When we get in on this new covenant, we are secure. We can never, we can never be taken out of this new covenant. So we're not teaching people to know the Lord, those who are in that new covenant, all who are in the new covenant already know the Lord and we are secure in that. There is security in the new covenant. There was no security in the old covenant. Now you say, well, are you saying they didn't have eternal security in the Old Testament? Well, nobody had eternal security and nobody even had salvation through the law, but they were. But we do see they did have faith in the scriptures. The, the scriptures show us there were people of faith, and like Abraham, who believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness, and he had eternal security. Those who are of faith had eternal security in the Old Testament. That's easily provable. But understand, that covenant that God made, though, with the house of Israel, it was there was no security in it unless you were of faith. And so, understand, in this new covenant, we did not get in through circumcision. We did not get in through the things of the law. We got in through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's what that's a reference to. Everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord. We don't need to preach the gospel to save people. They already have the gospel. You know, we can teach them more about the gospel to develop, you know, help their ability to spread the gospel and articulate certain things about the gospel. But again, Sluter just doesn't understand the old covenant or the new covenant. And again, Hebrews is quoting Old Testament. And a lot of these things in the Old Testament, they were. They were dark sayings. These were uh, things that were you know, previously not fully understood like we understand them today. But, uh, but what we are about to see, if we just keep reading and go into Hebrews chapter 9, it becomes crystal clear what we are talking about and that it without a doubt applies to the, our generation, to that generation in the first century. So Sluter is just, he's misdefining everything. When the new covenant comes into play, you're not allowed to tell anybody. You're not allowed to teach anybody. You're not allowed to tell anybody saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the great. Did he say you're not allowed to? Is that is that what he said? He's not allowed to? Okay, now it just says, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me. It's just showing there's no need. Okay, there's no need. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. We don't need a remembrance of sin being made every year and it needs sacrifices being offered. We don't, we don't have any risk of being thrown out of this new covenant. 
So this is, again, he does not understand the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. You say, why did he say allowed? That's not in the scriptures here. It's because he connects a passage about the millennium because he's gotten and said this is about the millennium from Zechariah 13. We're going to see that this is just not connected. Okay. This is, these are just errors. These are just provable errors that he's making. So that, so he's adding to the text here saying you're not allowed, even though that's not what it says. It's very clear from what it's saying. It's not needed because everyone already knows he's going to be merciful to their unrighteousness. What if they do wrong? He, God will be merciful. He will remember their sins and iniquities no more. That's what he does under that new and better covenant. Let's keep reading. Well, well that's not true today, is it? So how in the world can we be under the new covenant? How in the world can we be experiencing the new covenant? Because in this day and age, we're still supposed to, listen, if I've got a neighbor that's lost, I'm supposed to go tell them, know the Lord. All people don't know the Lord right now. But when, according to, where is that psalm? Somebody maybe look it up for me really quick. Do a Bible app. The, uh, the whole earth or the whole world shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. I think it's, or the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. It's somewhere in Psalms. Like Psalms in the 20s maybe, or I don't know. Look that up for me real quick, Dan. Again, I don't have this. I don't have that. He goes now. into a mess right here trying to find the scripture that he can't find that's find actually in Habakkuk that Somebody doesn't got, say what he needs what it to found? say. It doesn't prove anything. Filled with so knowledge. We've got this awkward moment okay, Psalms. just trying to make a millennial. Trying to make a millennial connection. Okay. Yeah, anybody with the Bible, I just look Does at it God not remember our church. sins? Look at it for me. No, he doesn't. Yeah. He's merciful to our unrighteousness. Remember what Paul said? Blesses the man to whom God imputeth righteousness okay, so man, we can't find it. without works. That That's at? what he does under the new covenant. This is describing oh, here. what we teach. This is Hang describing on. our gospel. Slur is spending all this time looking for a passage. Yeah, Back in 214. The 11-year-old got it. Don't worry about it, you Bible college students. Don't worry about it, Bible college this students. This is so bad. Got it. All right. This is awkward, embarrassing. Oh, I thought it was in Psalms. I mean, I wasn't any better off there. All right, the whole earth, tobacco, uh, tobacco, uh, good night, tobacco. Uh, Habakkuk 214, the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord. When is that? Is, is the whole earth filled with the knowledge of the Lord right now? No. No, but when will it be? At the end of the tribulation, right? The millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom. The whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Everybody's going to know the Lord. All nations, the Bible says, shall flow into Jerusalem. The Bible talks about how that ten Gentiles will take one will take one skirt into the Jew and say, "Take us up to Jerusalem and show us your God." And all that. He kind doesn't of stuff. Understand, so that understand that passage. That during the millennial kingdom, everybody's going to know who Jesus Christ is. They're going to see him come back, and what does it say? All eyes shall see him. Right? They shall look upon him whom they pierced. The tribes in the, uh, of all the earth shall mourn, and all that kind of stuff. So everybody's going to know who the Lord is. That's the millennial kingdom. Do you, do you hear him just jumping to all these scriptures all over the place? He's not making a real connection. Again. All of this is based on a false premise that Hebrews 8 is about the millennium. It's not about the millennium. And that's when, when is the Jew going to be restored to the land? The millennial kingdom. So that's when the new covenant, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that a nation shall be born what? A nation shall be born in a day. Remember that over there in Isaiah? A nation shall be born in a day. I think it's Isaiah 65. So at the second advent, all Israel shall be saved. God's going to establish a new covenant. Okay, let's just, let's just go to this Isaiah 66. He said 65, but I'm pretty sure he's talking about uh, something in Isaiah chapter 66. Let's, let's look at this because, again, this just shows he's being dishonest. He's just connecting all these random passages and making you think the Bible says something. He can't show anywhere where any of this stuff is spelled out. What does it say here? Uh, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? 
or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Okay, it's it's asking a question there. What does that have to do with anything that he's saying? Okay, he's just throwing out all these passages. Here, let me just let me just start throwing all these scriptures at you. And it is it's confusion. Okay, this is confusion. Now, you say well maybe sometimes sometimes let me give him this. I've been there many times. Sometimes as preachers, while even preaching things that are technically accurate, we do horrible presentations. I have preached many messages when I got done. I'm like, man, I really failed in communicating that. And that stinks. Okay. When it comes to these podcasts, there's been many times I've recorded some and I'm like, I did not do a good job explaining that. But nice thing about this, they're pre-recorded. I can do them again. With preaching, you can't always do that. Okay. And, uh, and there, and there have, there's been, you know, in some that I've just been like, yeah, that was not a great performance or a great explanation or presentation. So maybe that's what he's doing right here. But either way, it almost seems intentional. Because again, he's done nothing to prove Hebrews 8 is about the millennium. Covenant with Israel in the land that God promised them. They're going to be converted to the Lord. Their law, His laws are going to be put in their minds and in their hearts. And there's that's going to be the new covenant. And in the millennial kingdom, nobody's going to teach saying know the Lord for everybody because everybody's going to know the Lord. In fact, there's an interesting verse. Look at Zechariah chapter number 13. I think it's Zechariah 13. It might be Zechariah 12 or 14. But it's one of those three. We'll find it here. Uh, look there at verse number. Let's see here. Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13. And look there at verse number three. Now, this is this is the this is the the, the millennial kingdom. This is the second advent when Jesus sets up his kingdom, right? Because look at Zechariah 13, 1. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, said the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall be no more remembered, no more be remembered, and also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. So that's the second advent, right? No doubt about it. Verse 3. And it shall come to pass that when in now here's here's the punishment. Zechariah 13, 3. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesied. So Sluder... Nobody prophesied. There's no more prophecy. So Sluder reads that about when Christ is on earth. Obviously, there will be no need for prophets to give further revelation and, you know, additions to the word of God. If somebody comes along during that time and is like, yeah, I have this new word from the Lord, then yeah, we'd have, we'd have a real problem with that. We're not going to need that during that time. How does this equal not soul winning? Okay. So he's saying basically it'll be illegal to go soul winning in the millennium because everybody's going to be saved. But is it everybody going to be saved in the millennium? Uh, Who's Satan going to, get to follow him for the Gog and Magog battle, if that's the case. Is this forbidding soul winning in the millennium? And here's the thing. Even if it is, even if it is, you still haven't successfully connected Hebrews 8 to the millennium. So this is just, uh, he's just throwing out random stuff. Prophesying in the millennial kingdom. Why? Because Jesus Christ is literally on earth in Jerusalem ruling with the rod of iron. No more prophecy. No more need in teaching every man, uh, his neighbor, saying, know the Lord. Everybody's going to know who he is. All right? Look there at verse number 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now, here's where you have to be careful. 
Here's where you have to understand the difference between when God's talking to an individual and when God's talking to a nation. All right? You, when you're studying the Bible, there's, there's a couple of questions to ask. Number one, who is God talking to? Number two, when is God talking to them? Number three, what is he saying? You've got to understand those three questions. I mean, who is God talking to? Well, here he's talking to the Jews, Hebrews 8, 12. When is he talking to them? He's talking to them about the millennial kingdom. We use this verse, and there's nothing wrong with making application, but notice this verse here is not talking about individual people. He said, how do you know that? How do you know this is dealing with the nation of Israel as a whole? All right, go back, go back to Acts chapter 3. I want to show you a very interesting verse. Okay, now first off, Sluter does not do what he said you have to do in talking about Hebrews, uh, in the book of Hebrews, because who's he talking to? Jews. When is he talking to them? In the first century, when they were under that old covenant and were the people of God, and they need to follow after Christ. And he's going to go to another passage here and conveniently leave out some key scriptures that show us exactly what I've been teaching for several years about Hebrews. You have to understand it is a book taking a, talking to a generation who were the people of God and they risk losing their status as the people of God if they do not accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And they are being encouraged to embrace the new covenant, to leave the things of the temple. We see that in chapter 13. And to follow after Christ without the camp, bearing his reproach. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's trying to get them to accept this new and better covenant. And it goes into a lot of detail showing how your following after Christ is not violating the law. It's obedience to the law. You accepting a one-time sacrifice rather than a yearly sacrifice is actually according to the law. You following a priest from the tribe of Judah rather than Levi is also biblical and was prophesied because God prophesied of a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's showing legally how following Christ is not in any way a violation of the law. Sluter ignores all that. He's not talking about something way off in the future. He was talking about something in their day. The same thing we're seeing in Acts chapter 3 that we're about to go to. But let's listen to what Sluter says. Acts chapter 3. Look at Acts chapter 3. Here's what you got to understand about the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a what? What kind of book is it? Transitional book. It's transitioning from kingdom to what? Church age. Yeah, grace. It's going from Jew to what? Gentile. It's going from Israel to the church. So the first, it's interesting, God is so into numbers, it's wild. The first 12 chapters, who is the primary apostle that God is using the first 12 chapters? Whenever you're killing yourself on theology, you know, some... Uh, Distraction with some Ruckmanite numerology is always beneficial. That's what he does right here. Peter. Peter is the apostle to who? The Jews, right? I mean, it's clearly he's the apostle to the Jews. And to him was committed the gospel of the circumcision. First 12 chapters. Then, who's the 13th apostle? Paul. You say, no, 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 preacher. Matthias is the 13th apostle. No, remember, Judas falls and Matthias replaces him as part of the 12. So Paul is the 13th apostle. Isn't it interesting? When does the apostle Paul officially start preaching and begin in his ministry? Acts 13. The rest of the book is about the apostle Paul. 
See that there? First part of the chap, first part of the book, first 12 chapters, Peter, and it's talking about the Jews. Now, you've got some Gentiles mixed in there a little bit with Cornelius and the boys. But then Acts 13, the 13th apostle, how many books did the apostle Paul write by name? By name, that's right, 13. Hebrews is his 14th book, if he wrote it. How many chapters were in Hebrews originally? 12. Hebrew, the Hebrews, the Israelites, 12 chapters. He then writes chapter 13 sometime after the conversion of who? Timothy. I don't know where he All got right? that. So now notice this. It, th those numbers, man, the way the King James Bible fits in there, it's amazing how God designed this book. So Acts 3, Peter is preaching to a bunch of what? Jews. Notice what Peter says in Acts 3.19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Amen, preacher. That's exactly right. Hallelujah. We ought to preach that to sinners far and wide. Hold on. Just don't quote the rest of the verse to them. If you're going to use that verse on soul winning, don't quote the rest of the verse. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which was before preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution of all things. Hold on a cotton pick in second. If when you get saved, when you repent and get right with God, and get born again, when are your sins forgiven? Immediately. But Peter says here that your sins don't get forgiven until Jesus Christ comes back and restores and restitutes and all does all that. That's the millennial kingdom. Well, hold on a second. When do your sins get forgiven when you're saved? Right away? Well, how in the world is this talking to the church? See that thing there? You got to be careful. Those Jews are promised a national restoration and a national forgiveness at the second advent, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, and they get that thousand-year reign with Christ, and they get to dwell in the land. All right, so let's look at the scriptures that he conveniently leaves out. So let's go through, uh, we'll start in verse 17, because he is... I, I will agree with them. He is preaching about national repentance. I, I agree with that. And it says, and now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it as did also your, as also your rulers. But those things which God before hath showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now watch this. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear, and all things whatsoever he shall say unto you, and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Gear the children of the prophets unto the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Now, according to Peter, what days was he talking about? Those days. He says, these are the days. And understand that Israel was, they had already had destruction prophesied on them by Daniel. Jesus backed up that prophecy 
in the Olivet Discourse. It was coming. It was going to come on that generation. And so as a, the apostles were preaching national repentance. Now, of course, we see salvation in there, too, because they weren't going to have national repentance without getting saved and believing on Christ. But understand, every individual whose soul was saved went to heaven. However, as a nation, they did not repent. And you know what happened? They were destroyed. And they ignore that. They ignore that passage. He flat out says, he says, this is what Moses spoke of. Moses said a prophet was going to be raised up among your brethren. And they said, listen to him. And he's every soul that does not listen is going to be cut off, is going to be destroyed. And that generation as a whole rejected Christ and they were destroyed. So these, these people read this passage like, no, they're all going to get saved no matter what. No, not if they don't believe on Christ. They all can be saved if they abide not still in unbelief. They all will be saved if they'll call on the Lord for salvation. But what happened? They didn't. They never repented as a nation. Paul tried going back years later in the book of Acts against the leading of the Holy Ghost that tried to warn him not to go and that he was going to be bound. He went anyway. And you know what? They didn't repent. They attacked Paul. They got him put on trial. They got him thrown in prison. Paul went through all kinds of things and ended up going before Rome. And they figure out at the end of the book of Acts, the book of Acts concludes with them saying, well spake Isaiah the prophet of these people. It was always prophesied that Israel would reject as a nation, and Israel did reject. Israel was destroyed. Israel is gone. So again, he's he's taking this passage in Acts and acting like because it refers to Jesus being up in heaven, you know, until his until his return. You know, and there and it's like, you know, all these things apply to something way off in the future. No. He's like the prophets, they all spoke of these days. The same these days spoken of in Hebrews chapter 8 that he wants to make about the millennium. The apostles said, no, it was, we're in those days right now. These are the days that were spoken of. So let's listen to the final minute or so. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. For I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities while I remember no more. That's talking about the Jew, the national uh, nation there. Verse 13, in that he saith the new covenant, he hath now made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. There's a new covenant. This is also, we won't get in depth here and, and, and study all the ins and outs of this, but there, that's also the reason why the Bible uses the word covenant, but also uses the word what? Testament. There is a difference. There is a difference. All right? And the King James Bible accurately uh, conveys that difference between the testament. The, the church has the testament. The Jews have the covenant. That's what you have to understand about that. Now, the Jews can get in on the New Testament. They get saved today, right? Get part of the body of Christ. That's what you got to understand. This new covenant is to the Jew. And when you start trying to fit the church into Hebrews 8, you're going to get all messed up every which way you can think of. All right? Okay. So yeah, the Jews have the covenant. The church has the testament. And he believes they're different things. So let's go to, let's go back to the scripture here. Hebrews 8, 13. And that he saith, a new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Then verily, that first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made. 
the first wherein was a candlestick, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And he goes on describing that tabernacle and all the things that were in it in the first covenant. Okay, so he's talking about the first covenant. And he then let's jump to, and he goes into the high priest, the things that he would do. The high priest in verse 7 would go every year, not without blood. Look, then verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle is yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Sluter, has the time of reformation come yet? Would you say that that time has come? Because we don't have a temple anymore. We don't need a temple anymore. That Now, that temple, it was. It served a purpose under the first covenant until certain things were made manifest. Now, in Hebrews 9, 11, it goes on to say, But Christ being come in high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us, for the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified through the purifying of the flesh. How much more should the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So are, are you going to tell me that Paul's talking about something completely different here when he's talking about the testament? He talked about what there was under that old covenant, how it had the tabernacle, the showbread, the Ark of the Covenant, all those things. But now Christ one time made an offer to sacrifice for us. Isn't that what we sing about in our churches? And isn't he talking, telling this to Jews, to the people he just told about the new covenant who said that old is waxing old and ready to vanish away? And why did he say that too? Because like you said, in the book of Acts, it's a transitional book. They're transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant. They did not leave the temple right away. Pentecost was preached around the temple. The apostles, We see the early Christians still hanging around the things of the temple, and even the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20-something, he's still doing temple things. Well, I, I believe God was done with those things at the renting of the veil, but it was not fully manifest yet. And I believe it was fully manifest when that temple was gone, when it was destroyed, when those things went away. And... Understand that new covenant, it is here. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. It is what we preach about. It is what we sing about. And what is it we teach people? We teach that Jesus Christ made a one-time sacrifice once and for all. What is that? It's called the new covenant. That's what that is. And it says in Hebrews 9.28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Why did it say many right there? Well, the Calvinists like to use that to say it was because it was only for the elect. Or was it because it's explaining 
how those who did offer the bulls and goats like they were commanded to could still be saved by the sacrifice of Christ. Because think about this. If you're a Jew in that century and you're hearing him saying, hey, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. Well, then what about all our forefathers who offered up those things? What about all our forefathers who followed the things of the temple? You're saying those things can't save? What he's doing here is he's showing, no, those things did have a purpose for a time, but those things have fulfilled their purpose. What actually cleansed sin was not the blood of bulls and goats, but what those things pointed to, and that was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is what cleansed, and so the one-time sacrifice of Christ, it took care of the many or all those who were of faith before the cross and it also took care of all those that look for him in the future and those who will trust him in the future will all be saved by that one-time sacrifice that's what that's all about so Sluter doesn't understand what the new covenant is he doesn't understand what the old covenant is he doesn't understand how you got in the old covenant he doesn't understand how you get in the new covenant and so he's taken these prophetic passages from the old testament and applying them to things in the millennium when the Bible spells out the fact, no, these are these days. He just told you at the beginning when it says that day, that means after the time of Jacob's trouble in the millennium. But no, they use that same term in Acts and it's saying that's right now. We are still in the last days. The last days started back in the book of Acts. So uh, Sluter debunked nothing. He debunked nothing. He revealed the weakness of dispensationalism. And the reality is, again, and let me just say this, for the Ruckmanites, at least they will attempt to teach Hebrews 8. Boy, they fail bad and go into great heresy to do it. But your regular dispensationalists, you guys don't even want to touch Hebrews chapter 8. You know why? Because you know better than to say the new covenant's not for the church. But at the same time, too, uh, you're going to have a tough time continuing to make that distinction between the church and Israel. You know, Hebrews 8 reveals, like Ephesians 2, God broke down that middle wall partition that was between us, and he's made us both one. So, uh, sorry, these, this, was, this sermon was an epic, epic fail, directly contradicting direct statements from the Apostle Paul himself. This is not a matter of differences in opinion. No, this is a matter of Sluter directly contradicting statements from Paul and applying meaning to passages with no scriptural basis. And so that, that was what he did. I, I, when I listen to sermons, I like to, I pay very close attention. How did they come to this conclusion? Did they use scripture to do it? Or, and sometimes people use tricks and this is literally what he did. He took statements he applied meaning to him, and he gave no scriptural basis for it. And then he just started throwing out random scriptures everywhere to make it sound like he's got a bunch of Bible to back it up. And if you and if you actually go and let's go look up all those scriptures he referred to, you'll find out they're not connected. He's misapplying all of them. Were some of them millennial passages that he referred to? Yeah. But the problem is Hebrews 8 is not a millennial passage. It was for that day. And we proved it. And so... Sluter is a heretic. And again, I hope this doesn't make you nervous if you're a dispensationalist. All right, I still like you. But if you're a Ruckmanite, I don't. 
Okay, I, I don't I don't give you the dignity that I do my dispensational pre-tribulational brothers in Christ. Um, Ruckmanites need to be marked and avoided. Uh, they are a uh, they are a massive wart on the nose of independent fundamental Baptist. And so we need more people calling them out. I'd like to see more dispensationalists calling out Ruckmanites. I'd like to see more pre-tribbers calling out Ruckmanites. You ought to be ashamed of teaching like this. And anyone who uses a Ruckmanite to do their dirty work for them when it comes to defending their eschatology and stuff is a coward and obviously biblically illiterate themselves. And so uh, never, ever use Ruckmanites they will not help you. They will just lead you into greater heresy. So this was a long episode, but I appreciate everyone sticking with me and watching this, and we will see you all tomorrow.